I said, we're putting it down. That's what we're doing. Get in the, I was, t- I told the gunner to get in and, uh, I just did my best to flare off the descent rate that we'd established when I timed it out. And I cushioned us pretty well. So came down, flared off. We impact the snow pretty impressively softly for the descent rate we had. Um, but I was tail low when I was flaring and we broke through the snow. The tail rotor impacted the snow and ground. I watched the tail rotor go flying by the fuselage. <laughs> I, I, Good. I mean, there's worse place for it. Yeah, to be. exactly. Yeah. You know, so I watched that zip by. This is as I'm pulling the mixture and killing the engine. Um, and we, because we lost our tail rotor, which is our anti-torque, uh, the whole aircraft just started to turn. And I yeah. reached up, grabbed the rotor brake. We just flipped onto our side. And uh, I looked around. Everything was silent. It's just quiet. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Four years ago, I bought a new truck for the first time ever, and I was so excited. It was incredible. It smelled good. It felt good. I wasn't constantly afraid of breaking down. You know, it was awesome. But after I drove it for a couple weeks, I do the same thing that I always do, and the backseat started just, it started to fill up with stuff. You know, I'm guiding elk hunters and deer hunters, and I'm duck hunting and I'm fly fishing, and all that gear just accumulates. And pretty soon, I wasn't able to take people with me anymore. And I was embarrassed, you know, people would ask for a ride and like, nah, sorry, man, I've I've got too much stuff with me, but I couldn't put it in the bed because then it gets damaged by weather. So I go to the internet and I'm looking for options and I ended up buying a deck to drawer system. Now, this was a, a big purchase for me, but it, it's something that I felt like I needed and, and it looked like it was going to be a good product. And it really was. Dect came out with a new drawer system this year, and they've made some meaningful improvements over the previous one. You have almost no wasted space in your truck bed now, so you can access the sides of the drawers, and then the drawers roll a full 18 inches farther out, so you can actually access the back of the drawer, even if you don't have a lot of arm reach. There's some really strong tie-down points on top that have a 400-pound load rating. So if you're going to haul something like a motorcycle or big coolers or whatever, you can really strap your gear down and make it secure. You can lock these drawer systems. So you can lock the drawers. Or if your tailgate locks, then uh, nobody can access the drawers anyways. So I actually feel like my stuff is more secure inside this drawer system than in the cab of my truck. That's a big deal to me. The complete deck system is made in America by Americans. And you know that that's something that that I love and appreciate. They've got one that will fit in any truck or van that's been made in America in the last 20 years plus. You can go to decked.com slash six ranch and get free shipping. But just being honest with you, they get free shipping to everybody. I also, while you're there, want you to check out their deco line. So they've got a bunch of different boxes and storage containers that either fit on top of or inside of the drawer system. And those are built really robust. I saw the prototypes at an event this summer. 
I'm impressed. I'm excited to get my hands on them. I haven't yet, but the, the prototypes were, were super badass, and the ones that, uh, that are in production model, they're available now over at decked.com. So even if you just need a place for some tools or you need a new bow case or you know something along those lines, go check that out. And if you're driving around right now and your backseat is just full of gear and you can't haul people around, maybe you should consider uh, looking at the, the full deck drawer system because it's a good piece of gear. It was a good purchase for me, and, and I hope it helps you. Taylor Chisholm. Taylor Chisholm. You're such a freaking legend. <laughs> like, I've, I've wanted to do this show with you for a long time. I am very, very impressed by the things that you do. And I want to know how a person like you can exist. Mostly happenstance. Luck of the draw. Yeah, that, that is kind of how it goes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Like, there's a crazy cocktail of, of possibilities that ends up with, you know, whatever circumstance we live in. Um, where'd you grow up? I grew up on a ranch up in Washington, 10 minutes south of the Canadian border. Okay. It's a little town called Loomis. Loomis. No one's ever heard of all it. All right. All right. Um, my family background is logging and ranching mm-hmm. and orchards. Yep. So grew up doing that. Apples, cherries. Apples, cherries, pears. Pears. What kind of pears? Orientals mostly, but we pulled most of those orchards out. We're primarily on the uh, the apple game nowadays. What kind of apples? Do Cosmic Crisp, Honey That's Crisp. a good apple. I don't know about that. Really? I'm I'm holding out for the Honeycrisp. That honey... is the best cooking, eating, any type of apple. If you're going to have one apple, it's going to be the Honeycrisp? Honeycrisp. Cosmic Crisp is just putting a, a brand new sticker on something that's not broken at all. I feel like the Cosmic Crisps that I've had, they're, they're a good eating apple. They're a good eating apple. You can't, they just don't hold up to the Honeycrisp. You can, you can make applesauce, apple pies with no sugar. They're great eating apple. They're, just, they're they're versatile in every way. Okay. All right. I I planted one last year. The cosmic crisp tree. No. Honey crisp. Yes. And? Yeah, I mean it's just a baby. It's just getting started. Okay. We'll see how it does this year. Okay. I planted a peach also. And how'd that work out? Well, so what happened was it grew like five little tiny peaches and then we got a hard frost, like a twenty five degree frost on like June twenty fifth. Mm-hmm. That'll do it. Yeah. That'll do it. Nothing makes it. But I'd planned the thing like four weeks earlier. You know, I'm not. You weren't um, too sentimentally attached to it? No, I wasn't expecting anything. Like (laughs) I was proud of its effort for this year. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Okay. So when did you get into aviation? Um, I got into aviation four years ago. And prior to that, I was involved in wildland fire. Um, so I was doing, how so I was on, I started out on an engine and then I went to the hand crews and then I shotted, hot shotted. Yuck. What crew? Uh, Carson hot shots down in New Mexico. Okay. Yep. That's a legit crew. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hardworking crew. They, they do all right. Okay. What was your job on the crew? Just being a rookie mostly digging and working. Yeah. Hiking. Yeah. You know, but it was the end of the season. I've had two ACL replacements on my right knee. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, my retirement with the old Forest Service isn't looking so hot. I'm going to have to figure something else out. It's hard on the body. Yeah. And so we were on this fire out of Golden, Colorado. And we got flown in to the fire in a 205. And we're sitting there eating lunch after we get dropped off. And my buddy's talking to me. And he goes, you know, the airlines will pay for your flight training. 
if you give them three years. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But the helicopter was a lot more fun. Yeah. So I started looking into that and snowballed into where I am now. But Where did you get your rotor wing certification? Um, I started out in Durango, Colorado. Okay. And I was an intern ski guide there for Silverton Mountain, so it made sense to be there. And then in the spring, I transferred to Newburgh, Oregon, uh, Precision Aviation, now known as Pure Flight, mm-hmm. I believe. Yep. Um, and that was, yeah, that was kind of where I got my wings, if you will. Yeah, I will. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Pure Flight is also an institution that will take the GI Bill. Yep, they do. Yep. So that's something that I really want the vets who listen to this show to consider and the active duty guys. You can use your GI Bill to get your helicopter certification and become a helicopter pilot. And there's some really good programs around the country that are set up to do that. And you're going to also find that there's other veterans there who are doing the same thing. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, that was, I would say, like... The amount of students at Pure Flight, although it's a it's a fairly small flight school, I would say at least fifty to seventy five percent were vets yeah. using the GI Bill to make that step, and it's I strongly recommend it. Yeah, I have a GI Bill burning a hole in my pocket, and I have all the formal education that I really feel like having at this yeah. point. I mean, like, am I going to become a like doctor of philosophy or something? Like, no, I'll just go read books. Yeah, exactly. So in in today's age where our access to information is so good, like we can, we can really YouTube how to do a lot of things. Pretty much. Um, we can search Google Scholar or, or, you know, dumb around the regular internet and we can find like really smart information about just about any subject you want. Like you can get almost any book on audio on your phone almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Like our access to information is so good, but our access to being able to develop a skill like flying a helicopter, which is really freaking hard, that is still really limited. Like you have to go to school for that. It is. But I think that that's, I mean, that's where I have a lot of respect for people that have trade skills Yeah, is because it's not just instantaneous. It's something that requires a lot of consistent training. Right. Um, You know, I mean, anything from woodworking to race car driving to helicopter flying to hunting they're all aspects that require hands-on time yeah okay so when do you you actually get certified i got my training done really quick nine and a half months start to finish um i was once i started with now pure flight it was i was flying twice a day every day and then when i wasn't flying i was in a cafe with my nose in the far aim pretty much um, just because I wanted to get done so I can move on to the next step and then the next step and uh, yeah, hammered it out. It was tough, but that's just the consistency factor. Yeah. Do you have any idea what percentage of pilots in America are female? No. I think it's like one. <laughs> yeah. I think it's one or two. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty low. It's getting, it's climbing. Yeah. You know, I think, I think social media is that that is one of the pros of social media is there is an expanding network. You know, you you know, ten years ago you wouldn't have known about some chick up in Alaska that's flying bush planes and just Sure. Being a total badass. But now you there is a better network opportunity for that, I think. And that's why that's why I think you're so cool, is because you're a leader in such a positive way. Like you you are doing something that's so difficult and you're doing it well 
And you're setting that example for young women out there that, that want to go do something badass and they don't know if it's even possible for them and you're showing them that it is. Oh, it absolutely is. Okay. And when I'm talking about badass, I'm not just talking about like getting in a helicopter and flying around in a circle and being like, yep, that's a volcano off to your left <laughs> and uh, that beneath you is a glacier and uh, okay, you know, and that's cool, right? Flying tours is cool and it's a good way to rack up hours and whatever. But the stuff that you're doing is a lot of wildlife related flying. Yep. And you're doing a bunch of net gun stuff and I'm seeing videos of you jumping out of the helicopter onto ground way too steep to land on and you know, tackling bighorn sheep that are only halfway caught in a net. <laughs> like that's gangster. It's fun. How did you see your like did you ever think that this was gonna be your life? No. Um no, not at all. It was funny, so back in high school I I grew up on horses, right? And I grew up showing horses and my parents divorced in high school and they were very too much involved in their own lives to continue the horse show aspect. So I decided to myself, I said, well, I don't need a horse to learn to bareback bronc ride. So started going to schools and classes, bareback bronc riding, had a pretty major injury. And then I started bulldogging mm -hmm. and uh, had a few people really believe in me. You can't technically in high school rodeo place as a female for, for steer wrestling. Really? Nope. So it was exhibition runs. But I would have never thought that that is honestly what got me my first mugging job, which yeah. is the proper nomenclature for jumping out of a helicopter and tackling wild game. Yeah. It's a mugger or a net gunner. But yeah, I walked up to my boss this, I don't know, two falls ago, said, hey, this capture works super interesting to me. And if it makes a difference, I used to wrestle steers. He said, yeah, that does make a difference. Yep. So um, yeah, it's it's crazy how it's evolved. I never would have thought that that would be a tool yeah. that I'd be using. <laughs> yeah. No, it is funny. You know, I grew up raising Coriannis and we had to, I've, I've talked about this on the show before, but uh, it was always the worst when we were selling a lot of cattle that we're going to get bulldogged someplace because I had to train them all. Mm -hmm. And uh, you want to talk about just a way to get the absolute hell beat out of you. Oh yeah. It's like train, you know, 18 head of steers, how to get bulldogged. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't know if my, if my ribs will ever fully recover from that. But uh, you're for folks that are listening, Taylor is, um, I don't know, a, a, a small blonde woman would be a way to describe you. Like, I don't want them picturing like, you know, some uh, division one rugby player. Like you're not what somebody would imagine for, for mugging bighorn sheep or no. steers or bareback bronc riding. Yeah. No. Uh, it's what I was given. Yeah. And it works. Yeah. So. Works um, until your ACL blew out twice, huh? Well, you know that. There's there's always that. They can fix that. They can fix that. Yeah. You know, no big deal. Yeah. Just just a little recovery time. Yeah. Bang a couple stem cells in mm -hmm. there. Yeah. No whatever. big deal. Yeah. Keep Honestly, going. it hasn't it hasn't been bugging me too much. That's good. Knock wood. Yeah. You just got back from Nicaragua into, you know, this lovely weather. Mm hmm I was surfing six days ago, skiing Yesterday and the day before, it's been a blast. It's all just sliding on various forms of water, right? Yep. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, Nicaragua is great. We were rolling was 10 it? deep. Um, actually, one of the the buddy that invited me down there, he and I were in Mexico last year having a great time spearfishing and surfing and all that stuff. And 
We ended up spending three days. Well, I was there for three days. He was there for three weeks in Mexican prison, which was a real adventure. You got arrested in Mexico? Yep. Yep. For what? (laughs) What was your crime? (laughs) (laughs) So to long story long it, he and I, we were just, we both drove our eggs down there. We were just goofing off, having a great time. We were crossing back into the States. We'd been down there a whole month. We were crossing back into the States. There was a baron that went out on my pickup, so I was riding with him. Going through the U.S. border crossing, mm-hmm. and they're asking what various items we have on board. We've been camping the whole time. They sent us to agricultural inspection because we had three eggs from those dangerous breakfast burritos um, that morning. And, you know, we said, oh, we'll just toss them. Nope. We got to inspect them, yada, yada, yada. So we go over the egg inspection. We wait like an hour and a half. It's a whole thing. And uh, we're pulling out of there. They... Do tell us that we aren't allowed to have the eggs, by the way. I know everyone's on the edge of their seat about that, but (laughs) we're pulling out of there, and this little chickie runs up, and she goes, do you have Cuban cigars? Yeah, we got three boxes. There's a CFR that's been passed. You can't have those. All right, well, then just take them. I I do not give a rat's. And she goes, well, there's going to be a seizure that goes on your record, and anytime you cross back in the States, it's going to be a whole thing. Just cross back over into Mexico. Drop them off and come through, and you guys will be free and clear. And at this point, we're pushing two, two and a half hours dealing with this. And this is like a border patrol this chick? Is just, yeah, the border okay. patrol. And uh, we're crossing back into Mexico to drop off these three box Cuban scars, and they pull us into the search bay, and they spend, I'm not kidding, probably four or five hours. They pulled the seats out of the cab of the truck. They had It was a whole thing. Anyway, in the back of his tundra, it's like a new tundra. It's all built out for overlanding all that stuff. They had drawers. Well, they pulled the drawers off the rails, and lo and behold, in the, I guess, housing for that cabinet, there was this little dry bag lodged in the back amongst a bunch of, like, Nutri-Grain bar wrappers and dust. Uh-huh. Open it up. There was seven rounds of thirty out 6 ammo that uh, he'd been hunting a month prior, and he must, like, it just got jammed back there and then pushed, pushed all the way to the back. International arms smuggling. Four to seven year sentence. Wow. We were arrested on the spot, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a whole ordeal getting out of there for a handful of thirty out six rounds. Yep. Okay, so tell me <laughs> tell me about this this whole process. I wanted to learn more. Oh God. So we, to be completely honest, I will completely admit this. We tried to bribe our way out of it to start. Oh, that were, if if you're in 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 a jam in yeah. another country, yeah. That's a smart play. Like, go ahead and try and bribe your way out. Yeah. I mean, that's what I thought. It was so ridiculous of a thing that I, you know, it was. But they pull us from the rig. We go into the building. They have this big green sign that says battling the illegals of Mexico in Spanish. It says that this big green poster sign. They have two armed guards standing on either side of us. They make us pose for a picture with our seven rounds. (laughs) <laughs> 30 hot six ammo between us as if we were trying to smuggle a kilo of cocaine it was they you know posed it out and uh yeah it was just a whole hassle we ended up having to go we went to the prison we were inspected for injuries and then we were not told anything else we we were locked away we got we each got one call i called my boyfriend at the time and just said we're uh we're going to jail, I guess. I'm not worried about it. It's not a big deal. I think this is a whole bluff. And then Tyler called the consulate. Consulate goes, well, they found it. Like, you're guilty. So I got, th- here's some numbers for some lawyers. And uh, we were thrown into holding 
So he was he was in the cell next to me, and it was exactly what you expect a Mexican prison. There's a hole in the floor for your you know personal time, and then big concrete block to sleep on, and that was what you were given. And so he and I, I think mental fortitude would be the words I'd use to describe our attitude, which was just. Did you guys get to stay together? No, nope. We were, but we could hear each other. Okay. So, you know, the lights were always on. There was no windows. We had no idea what time it was. We were fed wet dog food twice a day. Wet dog food. Yeah. That's how I would describe it. It was, I don't even know what it was. It was like fancy feast in a plastic container. Did you eat it? Yeah, I was hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what else are you supposed to do? But then, you know, the other the other thing was, so they had the big giant liter bottles of water, like the the ones that you flip upside down at a in a break room. Yeah, they were that was outside the cell, and so if you wanted to drink water, you needed to have somebody open, like reach through the cell and dump it into your hands, the palm of your hands. From the cell over. So they would hold the water and dump it into your hands and you could, you know, bring your hands in and, and drink up and it was a whole thing. But yeah, he and I, we busted out a thousand push-ups every day, a thousand crunches, just kept talking. And then uh, the DA wanted, it was, I think it was like $35,000 for a plea deal because we were being charged together. And he said, you're going to have an, I'll sell you an expedited trial which means you'll be released at the three-day holding period he'll be probably two or three weeks before he can see a judge if you don't i don't care you guys are going to be in prison for probably the next two months until you see a judge and then the judge will review all of your information essentially and that will probably take another month or two and then then you'll either be released or you'll be charged four to seven years of international arms smuggling so we uh, came up with thirty-five grand. Wow! And I wrote a whole story about it when I got out. I uh, wrote a whole story. We had it raised within three days, and you know, got Ty out of there in three weeks. But he—he's uh, an Alaska smoke jumper, and so the wild, the wildland fire community really came out of the woodwork to to see to it that sure, you know, this was taken care of. Because honestly, all it was was just kidnapping, and with, with yeah. you know, I mean, it, it was what it was, but. Yeah, I was waiting for the hustle part of it. And yep. the, yeah. Where do you think that thirty five grand ended up? Oh, I think it probably ended up in, in his nice house, the DA's nice house. Yeah. There was nothing you could do. And so the other aspect of that was was on our second or third night in there was a an older gentleman, I think he was in probably his late sixties or seventies, and he was admitted into holding and he forgot about a handgun that he'd had, uh, that they found. And he didn't have a lawyer. He didn't have anyone to contact. He ended up dying in there. He was in the prison for like another month and a half, and he ended up passing away because he didn't have medication, all this stuff. So, I mean, they were serious. They did not care. If, if we didn't pay them, then they were just going to let us go through the due process. Wow. And that's just how... Did you get any was. help from the U.S. government? Did we? Yeah. No. Um, we did not. There was a few times that there was potential involvement of uh, like the, the Alaska governor. Um, but by the time anything even started to gain traction in that regard, it was all said and done. How was that? But it was, yeah, it was pretty impressive, the, the outpour of support for that whole thing. How does that make you feel about international travel today? Bad things happen to good people all the time. I'm not going to change my 
life yeah. out of fear of something like that happening. And honestly, I mean, Ty, the guy that was in there with me, um, he and I were just in Nicaragua. Yeah. It was, you know, it's just that stuff is character development. Right. I think. Yeah. You know, if you can look at it that way, that's the only way you can't live your whole life in fear all the time. I mean, that's a that's a great story. It's, I don't know, it, it's, it's really unfortunate that that happened. I think three days is a great story. Three weeks, that's, oh, that's some crazy. Trauma. That's some trauma. It was crazy. And, you know, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a jumper bro. So rookie training for smoke jumpers is trying to get you to quit. Yeah. It's, you know, it's trying to push you to your limits. And I think that without that background, yeah. you know, I think it would have been a lot tougher. Yeah. Um, but. Well, I mean, if he'd been a repeller instead of a smoke jumper, then um, yeah, absolutely, probably, you know, they would have just respected that so yeah. much more and, yeah. and just yeah. let it go. But as a as a jumper, I can I can see them being like, yeah, this guy's like not quite the best firefighter he can mm-hmm. be. So yeah. we're gonna go ahead and throw. Well, him they in needed jail. someone to barbecue and bronze out in the prison yard. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you need somebody who's like an expert in flip flops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's uh-huh. right. Yeah, that is hilarious. What are uh, what are some some interesting encounters you've had while flying? Um, you know, have you ever wrecked? I did have an accident. I had a crash. Did you? Yep. It would have been April first this last spring, and I had had. Four days off from January 1st to April 1st. So I was just running and gunning the whole time. And the primary job title, which would be, I think, probably 90% of the flying I was doing at that time was coyote hunting. Mm-hmm. So going to valleys yep. with, you know, big big ranching operations or multiple ranching operations and uh, getting down super low and shooting coyotes off of the calving cattle. Yep. Um, shotgun or rifle? Shotgun. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it was very close. Fixed wing or... Oh, it was heli. Okay. Yep. It was it was super fun flying. What what platform? Forty four. It was an R forty four semi automatic Benelli. Yep. Um essentially it would be myself the pilot and then in the other front seat to my left, you'd have a spotter. Yep. They're watching for coyotes, power lines, yep. low fences, you know, all that all sorts of that stuff. And then directly behind me is the gunner. And the gunner's positioned directly behind me because I have a better frame of reference and a better sight picture if I can bring the helicopter sideways and he's right behind me okay um and super fun super fun flying it's really low it's super high risk you're in a piston aircraft right so you're very power limited uh this whole incident occurred in nevada outside of elko and we were reviewing weather and the weather was supposed to just go to dog shit um uh, pretty early on in the day and we relayed that and just said we're probably going to be able to go out and fly maybe 45 minutes before the wind gets too bad. We went out and uh, super overcast day at 7,000 feet. The wind was going and we come in where we get, I think, like nine or 10 coyotes and we're coming back. I'm calling it for the day. There's a 30 knot wind difference between my ground speed and my indicated so we have, it's pretty substantial wind for a piston aircraft at 7,000 feet with two big dudes and myself. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, ridiculously flat light, we had this little patch of willows in this field and we're flying back and this coyote pops out of the willows, hmm. just takes off. And uh, the spotter, he goes, can we get that one? I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, that was my first mistake. I should have just pulled the plug there and been like, nope. 
but I had a headwind. So, you know, that was the decision I made and I came down on it and the gunner got a shot off, but you know, he'd pop back up, son of a bitch, ran, started running back towards the willows. I just did this big right banking turn. And the moment my tail came into that wind, there was no power left. Right. There's that Um, critical angle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were dealing with some pretty substantial gusts looking at the weather stations in the area and what they were reporting. Um, so I mean, we went, we were starting to go down. I raised the collective, got the horn, uh, dipped the nose, tried to recover it. It was super flat light. I didn't, I wasn't really sure if I was 20 feet off the ground or 40, just with how flat the light was. The only frame of reference I had was the willows off to my right. And anyway, I said, we're putting it down. That's what we're doing. Get in the, I was, I told the gunner to get in and, uh, I just did my best to flare off the descent rate that we'd established when I timed it out. And I cushioned us pretty well. So came down, flared off. We impact the snow pretty impressively softly for the descent rate we had. Um, But I was tail low when I was flaring. And we broke through the snow. The tail rotor impacted the snow and ground. I watched the tail rotor go flying by the fuselage. (laughs) I, I Good. I mean, there's worse place for it. Yeah, to be. exactly. Yeah. You know, so I watched that zip by. This is as I'm pulling the mixture and killing the engine. Um, and we, because we lost our tail rotor, which is our anti-torque, uh, the whole aircraft just started to turn. And I yeah. reached up, grabbed the rotor brake. We just flipped onto our side. And uh, I looked around. Everything was silent. It's just quiet. And I was like, we're good? We good? Is everyone good? Yeah, we're all good. So we climbed out and... That that was that. We started our hike out to this little abandoned farmhouse that was probably two miles out, and we had one bar of service. And I remember calling my best friend at the time. He was doing fuel. He's also a helicopter pilot. And I was calling him, and it's like, yeah, Dusty, we uh we balled her up. He thought he, we were messing with him. It's sure. April. It's April first. Yeah. You know. Oh, classic. <laughs> yeah. Great. Like, <laughs> Nobody's gonna believe you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so, oh God. It was. Yeah. It was pretty silly. And then, um, I mean, had anyone been hurt, we wouldn't even be. I wouldn't even be talking about this. But right. no one was hurt. It was a great learning experience. We call um, the National Transportation Safety Board. Report the accident. I write up a whole report. And they get back to me that evening and they say, "You're uh." you're good to move. No one was hurt. Like you're good to move the wreckage, et cetera. And it's winter time and we're two miles away from a road. Yeah. And, uh, so we went out there with a Sawzall and two snowmobiles and we cut strips off of the tail boom, two by Fordham to the skids, rolled the, the thing back up onto itself and then took the sled, the snowmobile and hauled it out like a, like a sleigh all the way, uh, all the way to a trailer. We loaded her up and drove her home. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that's a good thing about an R44, I guess. Yeah. Compact. Yeah. Compact. A little bit more compact than when it started. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Huh. But, um, you know, that uh, every other flying experience that I've had has been so positive. Yeah. Um, just the people you get to meet, the types of flying that I get to do. I'm super fortunate. I never had to do tours. Um, not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but immediately going into the wildlife work was really, really cool. Yeah. I'm interrupting the show to bring you another passage on wildlife biology. Here we go. 
Just like humans, fish and wildlife species are driven by the internal desire to ensure their survival. While the drive to survive is influenced by several factors, the most crucial item on any creature's to-do list is to acquire food. Some species, like herbivores, feed on a variety of vegetation throughout the year, while predators in an ecosystem have a more selective menu. Predators, in any capacity, require prey. Predator-prey dynamics appear straightforward when viewed from a distance, but upon closer inspection, things become increasingly intricate. The first step to understanding predator-prey dynamics is comprehending trophic levels. In a quick lesson on trophic levels, we start at the bottom with plants, then ascend to herbivores and climb further to predators. So when we talk about an apex predator, that's going to be at the top of that trophic pyramid. A predator's food choice is influenced by factors such as the size of prey, palatability, ease of capture, and most significantly, availability. Predator diets often shift as prey populations fluctuate. Similar to humans choosing takeout when home food supplies are low, red foxes may diversify their diet to include birds and fruit when their preferred diet items like voles and roe deer fawns are scarce. While it may seem like an individual red fox's dietary preferences are a minor issue, resource limitations could lead to a population-level effect, possibly decreasing the number of red foxes in an area. Examining predator-prey dynamics and interactions on both individual and population levels reveals complex dynamics. To illustrate how prey limitations may affect a population, consider the classic example of predator-prey dynamics, the interactions between the Canada lynx as a predator and the snowshoe hare as prey. Data from the Hudson Bay Company spanning from 1845 to the late 1930s north of the Canadian border documents one of the purest predator-prey interactions. If graphed over time, both populations oscillate in response to the other. As the snowshoe hare population peaks, the lynx population starts to grow, and vice versa. When the prey population grows, so does the predator population. Once predator pressure becomes too great, the prey base decreases, leading to a decrease in the predator population, allowing the prey population to start growing again, continuing the cycle. While this simple loop is rare, similar concepts and theories can be applied to both terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems. Placing a predatory fish into a lake full of smaller fish might result in the predatory fish consuming their prey excessively leading to resource limitations and a crash in the population while the prey fish populations rebound. These concepts can be adjusted to benefit either the prey or the predator. Removing predatory pressure to allow prey populations to flourish can increase neonate ratios in certain deer populations, like mule deer, neonate meaning babies, fawns. Conversely, introducing triploid predator fish can eliminate non-native prey fish, allowing the predators to grow larger. Triploids are fish that can't reproduce, so they can really focus all of their energy on growth. The complexity of these interactions often requires a case-by-case -case approach, rather than a one-size-fits-all solution. Some predators may adapt well by shifting their diet, while others may face population crashes due to a lack of prey. 
When discussing predators and prey, it's crucial to consider multiple dimensions rather than just two. Effective management should always take on an ecosystem-wide approach, accounting for all trophic levels to avoid cascading effects that could harm ecosystems. While the two-dimensional approach of predator-prey dynamics may seem sufficient on paper, the interconnectedness of all animals within a system demands careful attention to detail to maintain and protect healthy ecosystems. You know, we're over here in, in Baker City, Oregon right now. I drove over today and we're at uh, Barley Browns who uh, opened their tap house um, over here in the brewery early so that we could do this podcast. So shout out mm-hmm. to Barley Browns. Um, this is a great brewery. They make really good beer. And uh, I think the the Pallet Jack IPA has got to be like... Trophy. It is. It's a trophy yep. IPA. Yep. It's a good, good IPA. And uh, I don't say that about all of them. Not a beer snob. Um but I've drank my fair share, maybe a little bit more. And uh, <laughs> this is a good one, man. It is. Um, good outfit. They treat people well. So if you're ever in the area or if you see uh, their beer on the menu, give it a try because uh, they opened up early so that we could do this show. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't get hurt. Yeah. 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 You know, wildlife flying is pretty dangerous. It is. It's super dangerous. Um, I've had plenty of friends get hurt, plenty of friends wreck, fall out. Like, it, it's a dangerous, dangerous job, uh, but it's so fun. It is. And, I mean, I think that there needs to be light shed on the amount of technical skill that it's involved with every member of a capture crew. Yeah. From the pilot to the mugger to the net gunner. It's it's takes such a high level of skill, and it is, I would not have any other job, honestly. So, I got to tell you something about the word mugger. Yeah. Grew up on a ranch. And a mugger on a ranch is usually like the biggest kid you can find at a branding and their job at a branding. Some, you know, you've got somebody who's fancy or old on a horse and they're going to rope a calf. Somebody else, uh, you know, is going to rope the heels of that calf. So now you've got the calf stretched. But the person that roped the the calf by the heels probably only picked up one. So now you've got a, you know, somewhat restrained calf that's hauling ass around the branding pen and... Somebody uh, brought a dog that shouldn't be there that's running in and biting <laughs> stuff. And uh, somebody else is is riding a, a three-year-old bronc that doesn't need to be in the pen. Mm-hmm. And there's just a bunch of chaos going on. So the mugger's job is to go in there and grab this calf and flank it, which means that you're going to reach over the top of the calf, grab it by the skin on the front of the back leg, grab it by the neck or something like that, get your knees under it, pick it up, and throw it on the ground. Sometimes these calves are... You know, 130 pounds, sometimes they're 250, 300 pounds, depends mm-hmm. on the time of year. And that's mugging. And because I was the biggest kid around, I was forever the mugger. <laughs> if I go to a branding today, nobody <laughs> will even consider the possibility that I want to rope. I, I think I've, I've only like gotten the offer to rope maybe once in my life. And it was only mm-hmm. after a lot of complaining. Yep. All right. Um, so I've, I've always been the mugger and I, I just thought that that's what the word meant, right? Which is true. That is pretty much. Yeah. True enough. It's transferred. So then, um, I'm watching the news at some point and I hear about a guy that got mugged in Portland, Oregon. (laughs) And you're expecting him to be flanked by some big (laughs) And I was like, huh, (laughs) that is a strange robbery. (laughs) 
<laughs> somebody roped this poor guy. Somebody else ran in and grabbed him by the flank and threw him on the ground, put his knee on his neck, <laughs> held him there, gave him a couple yep. vaccinations and maybe a brand, hopefully not castrated, and yep. then took his wallet. And off he goes. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of funny things that ranch kids have to realize uh, that the rest of the world doesn't think that the way they do. Nope. Uh, another one is fancy. Um, I'd only ever heard the word fancy used to describe like a really good looking cow. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, I heard, uh, I heard a a woman get described as fancy Mm -hmm. one time. I was like, you don't see that. (laughs) That's, that's probably not going to go well. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. it's the, it's the city folk. Yeah. Yeah. God bless them. God bless them. Yep. That, honestly, that is some of the biggest pushback that I've seen with animal capture. Yeah. It's a completely necessary job, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, it's it's conservation work. It's the nitty-gritty conservation work. It's the real, like, actual yeah, conservation work. exactly. I mean, we're getting all of this data, you know, and, and from migration to predation, yep. attrition rates in calves and fawns. Um what they're eating, how they're how they're managing themselves, and that feeds into hunting, which yep. I think is another aspect of conservation. But anyway, the so the, recently the video that I posted of me jumping out of the helicopter and throwing that ram, that went viral, right? And there is a lot of ignorant, not a lot, but there was a pretty decent amount of ignorant comments about just harassing wildlife. Sure, and. Um, I think anybody that's ever worked with animals or hunted or spent time outside in that aspect has an understanding. But I think that people need to to do their research, understand the the job title and the purpose of it. Um, and I think that that's I've been trying pretty hard to bring light to the whole purpose. You know, we're not just out there showboating and tackling animals yeah. for the hell of it. Yeah, it's not a hobby. <laughs> it's not a hobby. Right? Yeah. No, I mean, pe- people on the internet, yeah, God bless their hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are pretty dumb. Yep. A lot of them are pretty dumb, and the dumb ones are loud. Yep. Uh, but most people are really smart. I, mm-hmm. I think that 70% of people out there are, are intelligent. They want to learn. Uh, they're open to new ideas. Uh, but they're not the ones that are going to make ignorant comments nope. on an Instagram post about something that you don't understand. Yep. Of course, I, I deal with that stuff too, right? Yeah, absolutely. If if, if I post something, like I can post a, a video of like, you know, a bear doing something bear-like and there will be people that turn it into some type of racist argument. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's impressive. This, this, this is nuts. You guys yeah. are nuts. But what what we don't necessarily see is that there's a bunch of people that get exposed to whatever information you put in the video or in the caption that they're like, huh, now I understand that a little yeah. bit better. Yeah, and exactly. I think that that's super cool. Uh, so don't lose faith. Keep doing it. <laughs> uh, and don't don't worry about the, the loud ones. Yeah. No, it's been it's been, I think, very educational for a lot of people to realize that this even exists. If it weren't for people that were doing all this helicopter work on bighorns, uh, there would be much fewer sheep now. Yep. I completely agree. Right? Um, And bighorns are an expensive animal. Like, I would love to know how much money the state and federal government spends per sheep. 
Yes. Like they're an expensive ass animal because they're being studied really meticulously. They're constantly being monitored. Um, they're being doctored to an extent. Yeah. And if, if it weren't for that, there would be far fewer of them. Absolutely. Yep. So some animals do die um, during capture. That's the reality of it. But it doesn't happen very often. It really doesn't. And, you know, for example, so we're doing bighorns uh, in California. And their policy is, is if you have an injury or if you have a death Mm -hmm. uh, with a bighorn, you're down for the day. Two deaths, you're out for the season. And three, you're, you're never, you're never working in California again. Gotcha. So they're, they're uh, pretty pro bighorn. The animals that we do see more injuries with are antelope. They're, they got super fine bones. They run in packs. They will tackle each other and, you know, beat each other. So. There's a slightly higher mortality rate with that. Still, though, it's very marginal when you have a crew that knows animals. Yep. Um, elk, you hardly ever see casualties with. Deer, they're pretty hardy. Um, wolves, almost never. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the antelope, they're a little bit more fragile. Again, it comes to net placement. You know, we're, when we're out flying these jobs, there's a constant conversation that's happening when we're on an animal. So... The pilot's talking to the net gunner. Okay, we're going to wait for this upright, like this, you know, rise in the slope so the animal's slowing down. Okay, this is too rocky. We're going we're gonna to move them to a grassier area. And you have about 30 seconds to a minute before you want to pull off them because you don't want to stress them out too much. So you got 30 seconds to a minute to get the animal in perfect position. The net gunner has to be on his game. And so then, you know, we'll present the shot. He'll pull the trigger. Say, good net. You know, that lets the mugger know that they need to be getting their buckle off and getting ready to get out and work the animal. So it's it's all a very nuanced, cadenced, practiced thing. Um, you know, it's not just a bunch of cowboys that watched a couple YouTube videos and, and went out there. Um, and with that video that went viral, that was a lot of the other responses was, how do I get into this? I would love to become a mugger. Yeah. So tell the people. Luck, um, it's not, so it's very unusual for a Forest Service member, like a biologist, for example, to go out and work the animals. Yep. So we're contract, we're private. And there's, I think, four or five companies that do this. You show up, you'll be potentially interviewed, and it it comes down to your background, honestly. Mm. And the other thing is, is, and I'm only speaking for the two companies I've worked for, if you want to mug and get into it, you need to have a former mugger either reference you and say, I'm going to put my name on this guy. I've branded with him or I've hunted with him or I know or her. Um, and the other item is that a mugger or net gunner needs to retire, get injured or quit. Because yeah. it's just it's you run with the crew that's so tight right. for years and years and years. There's a space. Yeah. 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 Um, that's not to say that it's impossible to do, but if someone does want to actually look into it, they need to look up avi- the aviation company themselves, not try to file it through the Forest Service. Now, the Forest Service and other government agencies offer some really cool job positions um, that work the animals. But if you're like chomping at the bit to jump out of a helicopter and wrestle an animal, that's going to fall on the aviation company. Yeah. Um, and the biologists that we work with are super rad. They're out in the field. There is a lot of times that we'll capture an animal, 
get it hobbled and blindfolded, and then we'll fly the biologists out to the site to process the animal themselves because they have more measurement equipment than what we do on our person. And um, so there's opportunities to get into this industry on either side. The biologist government side is probably the easier route to go if you want to get out in the field. Yeah. Um, but it's not, nothing's impossible. There is, there is a method for getting into these type of jobs that, uh, that I've used in the past that, that works. I'm going to talk through it real quick. Yeah. Okay. Story time. Uh, I'm in college. I think I'm a junior and Dillon, Montana, Southwest Montana is often the coldest mm-hmm. place in the country, uh, on, on any given day in the winter. This particular day, it was like 37 degrees below zero. And everybody showed up for class and there was just a mountain of clothes in the back of the classroom. Like kids were wearing everything that they owned Mm -hmm. just to survive getting there. And everybody showed up except for the professor. So we're all there. And then we get the email that um, class is canceled because she doesn't want to waddle over like a block away from the school. Didn't like her much. (laughs) So I was like, all right, I'm up. Uh, Don't want to waste the day. So I was like, "Ah, I'm going to go elk hunting. Mm -hmm. So. I go out and I um, climb up into the Blacktail Mountains. I find this bull that is just like wanting me to shoot him. He's so mm-hmm. cold. And um, I hear some wolves off in the background. And I think I was four or five miles back in, which is a long ways in the snow. Nobody knows I'm there. I'm by myself. And I just decide to pass on this bull, which I don't think I've ever passed. <laughs> and I certainly not at that point in my life ever passed on a bull elk, but I was like, this is, this is dumb. I've done several dumb things. I don't need to add to mm-hmm. the dumb pile. So I hike back to my truck, driving back towards town, trucks, frozen, shocks are frozen, hit some washboards, flip roll. And I break my rifle in half. Okay. Okay. It was a really nice seven mm STW had a beautiful wooden stock, a uh, burl maple stock and uh, broke it in half. I'm a college kid. I don't have money to fix it. There's a mm-hmm. sniper rifle shop in town. Um, it was kind of the beginning of these custom rifle shops that, that you know, are, are a dime a dozen now. Mm-hmm. But at the time, there's very few of them. So I go to this shop. And I'm like, can you guys fix my gun? They're like, uh, can you pay for it? I'm like, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I can work. And they're like, yeah, get out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, okay, respect that. But I also came back the next day and the next day and the next mm-hmm. day. And uh, finally, the guy, you know, was starting to get frustrated with me. I'm like, there's got to be some work I can do around here. Yeah. And he got mad and he yelled at me and he goes, well, you can sweep the effing floors if you want to. It's like, where's okay. the broom? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and he was just so amazed that I was actually willing to do anything that I started getting more work. And then I started to learn how to build guns. And then the next thing you know, I had a new stock for my rifle and was mm-hmm. ready to go by spring bear season. The point of this is that I think everybody who does trade type work respects like actual labor and persistence. Absolutely. So if somebody shows up to a hangar at a company that does this and says, Hey, can I sweep the floor? And if they get told no, and they're back again for five mm-hmm. days straight, um, that's how you can start building a relationship. And if you really want something like you can use this model to get into anything in oh, trades. That is how I got yeah. into. So after my crash this spring, I wanted to get into firefighting. This was, that's, I'm getting to the hour requirement, right? Um, for the forest service, which is 1500 hours. And 
firefighting from the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I go to the company down the road in the Grand Columbia Basin Helicopters and walk in and said, hello, my name is Taylor. I just wrecked a helicopter. I have no time in the airframe that I'm wanting to fly with you guys, but I want to, I want to work for you guys. Yeah. I want a job. And, uh, you know, I didn't get a call back and I was like, God damn it. So show up two days later, mop the, mop the hangar floor. Yeah. Like, I really want to fly for you guys. Yeah. You know? And okay, fine. You know, here's, here's like the POH for this airframe. Just like learn it. And maybe, maybe. And so a couple of days later show up, and I just spend all day sitting in the cockpit of the Huey, going through the POH, memorizing everything, going over emergency procedures. I just, I just keep lingering around and offering the mechanics, you know, what I can do, and you know, asking all these questions. And it, fi- it finally got to the point that he sent me t- with another pilot down to California to to help fly a job. And it's just that it was that consistency that even got me the opportunity to go down to California and, and help with this job. And when I got back the owner of the company had called the pilot I flew down with I was like, well, you know, she, she a good hanger mopper or is she a good pilot? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he's like, yeah, give her, give her a shot. And so get the call and he goes, well, I guess you start Monday, go teach yourself how to fly a bucket. Yeah. And, uh, it's just, it is, it's, it's grit. And I think honestly, I think it starts with a firm handshake yep. and eye contact and then a willingness to do, to be humble. Yeah. Honestly. And, I don't think I will ever get far enough in my career to ever not be humble um, to get a job or just to be, you know, just to be around people. I think is you're not better than anyone else. Yep. And I think that 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 mentality is what keeps a person exposed to opportunity. Yeah. No, I agree. How did you like uh, flying the Huey? Flying fire in the Huey is my second favorite job besides flying coyotes. Was it a 205 or 212? It's a Huey, like okay. the yeah. It's not okay. civilian. It's it's restricted. Um, the actual Huey. The, the real the, Huey. The There's there Huey. are Vietnam bullet holes in my Huey that I fly on fire. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. actually down the tail boom. I love the two hundred five. That was my favorite thing to to repel out of. Um, I didn't love the two twelves as much. Uh, I don't know. I, I I like the way they sound. I like the way they look. Mm-hmm. I was very confident being in that aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's a great aircraft. Yeah. It's just a big old school bus. Yep. Yeah. Um, so. so how different is it flying buckets from flying out dead elk? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've also seen videos of you flying elk out for people that don't want to pack them out and part of me is like, yeah, I'm all about mm-hmm. that. So I've got questions. One, how much does it cost to get Taylor to show up with a helicopter and fly out a whole elk and set it in the back of my pickup? I have no idea. It was so, <laughs> <laughs> I have no clue. You know, I, uh, I will be, as, I will not be just, it was completely legal because it was private, not for profit, not getting paid, pulling from private land. Okay. Um, which is, those are the two, the two big bugaboos that you're going to have to deal with. Um, BLM does do some contract work where you can get a permit for specific areas. And, you know, I've done a lot of work with the 44 where I will fly hunters in, sling all their gear into an area. And then when they're ready to get, get out, sling all their stuff back out. 
But you have to have a special use permit, just yep. like an outfitter or anybody yep, exactly. else. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly right. Um, to have a Huey come and pull an elk out whole, that is that was just it was a privatized situation. Gotcha. Um, it was fun. Yeah. You know, I was on my, to be completely honest, it had been my first day off in a few months, and I was on my way to get breakfast mimosas mm. I was out the door, and I get this call. Hey, uh, how you doing? I'm on my way to get mimosas. Have you had any yet? No. All right, go get the Huey. <laughs> I'm going to send you some coordinates. Um, but Baker Aircraft does offer uh, the service of getting flown in, all your stuff flown in, having a time, and then and pulling it out. Yeah. It's honestly more affordable than one would think. Right. Compared to, let's say, you want to use a pack string to do it. The the vet bills and the feed bill and all that stuff to manage a pack string is probably close to what you're expecting to pay to just have that flown flown out. Yeah. Um to say it's a rich man's thing is not accurate, I don't think. I think that hunting covers a very broad spectrum of incomes. Sure. You know? Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, but I mean, you can go out, you can go get a tag, go out your back door, you know, whatever, and do the whole thing yourself. And then there's people that pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to have an entire expedition run. So the helicopter is just one iteration of what you can do with hunting. Yeah, yeah. Do you own that Stinson? Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me about your Stinson. Um, that little Stinson is a 1947. 1947. Does it have a name? Uh, Frankie. Frankie. Yep, that's the type of engine that's in it. Okay. So, um, Which people don't say the best things about that engine. It runs like a sewing machine until it doesn't. And to be completely honest, I have unintentionally tried to kill myself in that plane so many times, and it has never failed me. The engine or the airframe itself. So we were originally going to record this podcast from an airplane and mm-hmm. plug into the, the speaker system. But you told me that your Stinson, um, that the avionics only work if the throttle is yeah. all the way off. Yeah, there's there's an, there's an issue with the uh, something in the wire there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it would be a short podcast if we had to just keep pulling the throttle out. Yeah, but I mean, you don't even have to have a radio. I think people don't don't know that. No, nah, it depends on what airspace you go into. Yeah, well, sure. Um, but flying into a towered airspace, depending on what it is, um, so if it's a, if it's a Charlie or, or more complex than a Charlie, you need to be able to have radio comms. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to file sometimes that you have a radio issue to go into yep. those airspaces. But mostly I just fly it, you know, I'll pull the throttle out and give a couple words and yeah. push it back in i can hear them just fine and they can usually hear me i spend most of my time flying out in the mountains sure um but funny story with that plane stinson is not a bad aircraft for no, flying in the mountains it is not bad at all and uh so is, is it a piper stinson nope it's just a straight stinson okay and uh it's the 108-2 so it's there is the straight stinson Stinson 108-2 and the Stinson 108-3 the the dash three is primarily a float plane platform okay. yep um, but I was up my family's ranch dealing with the death in the family. So I was up there, you know, just spending a lot of time there and I was kind of getting bored, um, uh, between just sorting through random stuff. And I called a neighbor 
I said, hey, you know, I know you got a plane. I've never flown a plane before. I would love to go up with you if you're, if you're going out sometime. And he says, well, I'm selling it. I go, okay, well, what is it? What are you asking for it? Yeah. Like I said, I've never flown a plane before. Yeah. So uh, he tells me, and I, you know, do some price comparison, what he's asking versus what uh, what's being sold on the internet. And he goes, well, you know, I'll sell it to you for the price I bought it at at auction like 10 years ago. Because I used to brand for him. He knows me pretty well. And, yeah. Um, Were you a mugger at the brand names? No. <gasps> no, I was not. So I was, fancy. I was a little kid on horseback. So mostly. fancy. You're spoiled. <laughs> All right. Now I know what I'm dealing with. <laughs> I was just a little kid on horseback. Um, And go out and I fly once with him. It's great condition. And uh, I say, okay, well, I guess I'll buy it. Why not? You know, yeah. it was a, it, honestly, it was a, it was a cost of a used pickup is what I got it for. And it's worth the cost of a new pickup. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, there, there were times that you could buy a Stinson for 20,000 bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did. I bought mine for 35. Yeah. And uh, it's got, you know, it's pretty new engine, brand new fabric in really good condition. But I call one of my buddies and say, hey, I just bought this plane. I don't know how to fly it. Can you t- help me get it down to Oregon? And, you know, I fly it down to Oregon. I spent, we got there on Friday. We spent the weekend learning how to take it off and land it. And uh, I get my solo sign off on Sunday. Barely know anything about this plane and sent on my way. Headed down to Jackson, Wyoming, where I used to live and weathered out here in Baker City, Oregon. Met Troy with Baker Aircraft and he offered me a job flying helicopters. So it was all happenstance. Isn't that cool? It's super cool. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I got into mugging. That's how I got into this whole area. And it's just, it's a lot of the time it's luck of the draw. Yeah. But yeah, no, that plane is fantastic. Yeah. I've done a lot. And it was just, it was just in a Yeti photo shoot. Yeah. If you, uh, if you go to, you know, Shields and you go to the Yeti section, you'll see my, my Stinson and myself. Yeah. Hanging out out there. Looking cool. Looking cool. Yeah. So. I think that's awesome. Uh, is that your forever airplane? No, I think I'll keep it for a long time i don't know if i'll ever sell it but i definitely i want to get into aerobatics okay and um so i think that'll be the next purchase far down the road do you think you're gonna die flying i i could die from choking on a piece of steak alone in my house yeah i don't i don't know maybe yeah Yeah. i might fall down a mountainside or i might die at 97 in my bed right i don't really much care anyway yeah i'm just happy with uh happy with the experiences i've gotten so far and the ones to come. How do you find the edge of the envelope? Experience. Yeah. If, if, if pushing, sometimes pushing the envelope a little too far. Yeah. Um, I th- I will admit when I was younger, which I'm 25, so when I was in my late teens, I was constantly trying to find the edge of the envelope. Sure. Aggressively. Um, and now that I've come into higher consequence sports and hobbies and all this stuff, I'm glad that I pushed the envelope when I was younger because it's given me a respect for what I am capable of doing, but also what could go wrong. And I think that's a really fine line. Um, I will say that my acceptance of risk is probably higher than the average bears. I think that 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 is the difference between success and failure for a lot of people Mm -hmm. is whether they're willing to accept risk. I see it in business. I see it in, in personal life. I was talking extensively about this with uh with my friend gene who i was with in north carolina uh, a week ago and his risk tolerance 
has gotten really low as he's gotten older. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of his successes that he found, whether it was in the military, which was rotor wing, um, or in business afterwards, the greater the risk, the greater the success. Yeah. And it is, it's hard to know where that edge is and it's dangerous to find that edge, but pushing towards it, I think, you know, for a lot of people, yourself, myself included, uh, it, it is really important to, to take calculated risks. Absolutely. And you're going to get some bumps. Mm-hmm. You're going to get it wrong. But gosh, it is so much better than if you don't. Exactly. I can't exactly. imagine living a life without risk. No, I completely it, agree. It would be so unappealing. It'd be so flat. Uh, Static. I, I, I just wouldn't want to live like that. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, so I'm a helicopter pilot. I have a little bush plane. I'm a skydiver, rock climber, diver. You know, I've, I do a big snowboarder. Um, so there's, there's this commonality of risk. And people will call me an adrenaline junkie. And I would like to be very clear that, that is in no way the case. I don't get a rush right. out of something being more dangerous yeah. or not dangerous. Um, it's not something I go looking for. For me, what it is is just the ability to experience... I guess just human awareness, you know, to be able out and, and see mountains from 18,000 feet as you're jumping out or, you know, flying your plane and seeing mountain goats run around snowboarding with your friends. It's, it, there's just, it's just a, I think it's a more valuable feeling um, than if you were to just sit around and wait for the next newest car to come out or. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it may be, I a, just... I, a new show on Netflix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you hit on something there that, that I found to be true, which is that people that, that engage in some of these higher risk activities, other people will call them, call us adrenaline junkies. And if I describe the things that I've done in the past, uh, you know, like, l- let's let's go down the list, all right? Um, I'm a, a guide. I do whitewater jet boating. Um, I fought wildland fires, a barrel chested sky God. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, a tank officer in the Marine Corps, right? I, I, you go down this list and it's like, well, wow, there's a lot of really high risk activities. You must be an adrenaline junkie. And I don't feel like that nope. at all. And I'm a, a really calm person. The people that engage in these type of things tend to be really calm people. I just think that we need a little bit more input to, to function. Absolutely. And, and there's, there's people that can function really well without those inputs. Yeah. And that's fine. Uh, and I'm, I'm really happy for them, but I wouldn't be happy with that kind of life. Absolutely. That is a, that, that's a fantastic way to put it. It's yeah. I think that, I think that all of these things come down to having to use your brain to make decisions quickly. Um, or even, you know, a, even nuance, in a nuanced regard, you know, with hunting, that's that's high risk. Yeah. It can be anyway. Sure. Depends on the uh, kind of hunting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, that's high risk. You have to make decisions constantly from various inputs and it's a, a always changing environment. And that's something I think that all of these items share is variety. Yeah. Um, and, and a need for engaging your mind to feel, to, to be successful in whatever it may be. Where can people follow along in the adventures of Taylor Chisholm? 
Just Instagram. Okay. That's what I got. It's uh, just Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R-A, as in alpha, mm-hmm. and then Chisholm, C-H-I-S-M. Okay. 10 out of 10 would recommend. You never know what's going to pop up next. Uh, I'm excited for your future. I'm and stoked. I'm uh, I'm excited to have had this conversation because we've been talking about it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you're not off the hook. We're going to do this again. <laughs> uh, I do want to record a show with you um, flying around the Elkhorns or the Caps. So we got to find an aircraft that we can record in. And yeah. uh, I think we're taking the heli out Wednesday. So... I'm lion hunting on Wednesday. Oh, darn. Yeah. Well, you know, if you end up on private land and... I will be on private out. land. Yeah, <laughs> I will be. Yeah, if you, if you get a text message, be like, hey, gas up. <laughs> I'm not packing this thing out. It's time to go. <laughs> Steep. I'm scared. <laughs> you need a 150-foot line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. We need to uh, we need to get up in the air and, and, and do the thing when... Uh, when the weather's better today because I could barely keep my truck on the freaking interstate today mm-hmm. coming over here. Oh yeah. But yeah, it's always a good time. A Huey can beat weather into submission. Oh yeah. It's not scared. Nope. Nope. Not until you're, not until you're scared. Yeah. But now we'll be fine. Well, thank you again, Taylor, very much. Of course. Thanks for having me. Okay. Cheers. Thank you all very much for listening. I'm going to keep bringing you these stories from normal people just like you who have done extraordinary things. Everyone is an expert at something and they have interesting perspectives on life and work and the environment and all the things that we care about. I'm going to keep bringing that to you. And I want to thank you so much for making this show possible. I also want to thank Emily Bratcher for producing this show. She does it great job editing really appreciate her i want to thank john chatelain he did the art for the six ranch podcast and Celia, soon to be harlander uh, she digitized that so that we can get it out there on the internet for you also want to thank justin hay for writing this original music and the beautiful whistling that you're listening to right now you guys are awesome thank you so much please keep listening to the show write me a review if you feel like it And just keep doing your thing and we'll all learn from this together. It's been fun and, you know, we're we're just getting started.